Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things anxiety and big emotions. Now, we're still in the back to school series. I know that we're in November here, but there's a lot of things to talk about. Although everything I talk about is true, not just for kiddos, also adults. When I'm talking about perfectionism, that's where I was starting off our social anxiety section, which I'm on still now. Shyness we talked about last week, still true for adults. It's not just kids, just my focus tends to be on kids. But today I am focusing more on the social anxiety, specifically around social situations that are anxiety provoking. So it could be going to the bathroom in public. It could be eating in front of other people, obviously, you know, presenting in front of other people or going to a party. Those are the ones that we usually think of or asking someone to go and hang out. Now, social anxiety, it's not just true for teens and kids. It's the number one worry we all have as humans. And that makes sense. I mean, our brain hasn't changed much in, you know, over 10,000 years and even more so. And if we didn't belong to a tribe, if we think back to cavemen days, if we didn't belong to a tribe, we died. We got eaten. So we have to be part of a tribe to be able to survive. We are social creatures and we have this foundational need to belong, to be liked, to be loved. We have to have our tribe. So it makes sense that we get nervous before a presentation. I present in front of 100 people all the time, hundreds of people all the time, and yet I still get a little nervous beforehand. That's normal. And we've seen this social anxiety. It's intensified over the past couple of years because of COVID, especially in our kiddos who've missed out on very important developmental opportunities to be able to connect and socialize with all those school closures. They have missed out on so many important opportunities. And even when school opened up, it was still limited. I know in my daughter's school, it wasn't until this year that they were able to interact with other ages and other grades because they were in their cohorts. So they've really missed out on all of these opportunities to engage in school at recess, but also outside of school with playdates and things like that. But even adults too, we've gotten out of the practice of being in social situations. So we've definitely seen this huge increase in the social anxiety, but our brains, we got to think about this. Our brains are working exactly how they're supposed to, right? Just some of us are more sensitive. Some of us are more easily sucked into, I mean, we've got thousands of thoughts that are running through our head all the time, right? Even just in a minute, we've got 4,000 words, which is an hour long presentation running through our mind all the time. And some of us are more sensitive to some of those conspiracies. Some of us are more easily sucked into some of those conspiracies, those catastrophic conspiracies, right? That, that come along with any fears and worries. So it, it's a problem and it becomes disordered when it's so intense, these worries are taking over, it's interfering with our ability to function right? So maybe it's normal to have those nerves before we're going into a talk, before a presentation, but when we get sucked in so far and it becomes more impairing, we can't even talk at all. We can't do a presentation at all. And it's interfering, not just with our ability to meet the challenge that we're supposed to do now, but it's interfering with our relationships and just our ability to live life, everyday life. So that anxiety, it comes from worries. When we're talking, talking about social anxiety, it's coming from worries about what are other people going to think about me? They're going to judge me, right? Our social worries really are around believing that everyone in the whole universe is paying attention to me and special attention to me. They are really checking me out to make sure I'm not going to make a mistake, right? Or slip up or do something foolish. And so they're going to judge everything from my hair to how I smile, to my sweaty palms, to how I talk. 
And then there's all these physical symptoms because again, the brain can't tell the difference between, oh my gosh, people are judging me and I'm going to be attacked by a bear. So all of these physical symptoms are created to prepare us to be attacked, right? We got to run or we got to fight. And so our body is revving up to be able to face that challenge, but it becomes this vicious cycle because now we're sweating. And now we're shaking and now we're turning red. And then we're starting to worry about, oh my gosh, people are going to notice how sweaty I am. And we're wiping our hands and we're running to the bathroom and drying our armpits, right? They don't want people to notice that I'm so nervous, right? Um, but then because we're even more nervous and we're more concerned about those symptoms, those symptoms are going to keep going, right? And we start shaking and sweating and turning red even more. It becomes a vicious cycle. So let's talk quickly about what to look for. It's pretty similar with any anxiety. Remember, anxiety is anxiety is anxiety. Our younger kiddos, they're going to be scared of anything new or anyone new, right? They're going to be irritable. They can be really clingy. They can be overly dependent. They hide. They refuse to talk. They're not looking at other people. And especially when they start becoming aware of other people and this is mom and this is somebody else, right? We start seeing some of that stranger danger. But once they get into school, um, we see these kids who might not talk to their teacher. They might not talk to their classmates. They might not put their hand up in class. They might not read out loud. They might not do group work or they'll just sit quietly and watch people in group work or watch people out on the, the playing fields. They might not participate in music, but they're happy to watch. Or same thing with gym. They'll just sit on the hot sidelines, Right. Uh, at home, they might not go on playdates. They're going to refuse to go to any playdates or sleepovers or birthday parties. They're not even going to have friends over on the, you know, some extreme ends. Uh, and, and very extreme, we see a lot of selective mutism where kids just aren't talking at all. Maybe to some kids or one kid, they're safe person, but they're not talking to anybody else. These kiddos usually have all of those physical symptoms as well as, as with the older kids, but the um, older kids and uh, adults might perceive those feelings differently. So for younger kids, it's just, I'm not feeling well, I'm having a headache. Teens will say that too, but they really know it's this panic sort of setting in. As they're getting older, those quiet teens try to hide away, right? They're, they're pulling their hats or their hoodies down over their head. They keep their eyes down, right? They're hiding behind the biggest kid in the class. They're not participating in anything still. They're just really quiet, really sweet at the back of the class, right? So they're not participating in class or group discuss discussions. They're not participating in any extracurricular activities. And, and sometimes it gets so bad that they're refusing to go to school at all. Um, and if you try to talk to them, they become even more withdrawn, especially if you're trying to force them to talk, right? They likely don't go out much. They probably sit alone. They're not asking for help. They, they have to show up at school. Um, but when they do, if they do go to school, for those who aren't school avoiding, if they show up at school, they're showing up just in time right? So that they don't have too much time to have to socialize with people. So they don't have to, you know, chit chat with other people. So they're showing up just in time, but not late. <laughs> Being late would be a problem too, because now they have to walk in front of everybody and everybody's going to see them. The last thing that they want is to be the center of attention. So they are doing everything that they can to sort of hide into the wall. And so that they're not noticed at all. Now, a lot of these kids, they might have a friend, right? They might have a little group of friends, but but usually it's just they do best one-on-one, -on -one, right? They're not jumping in on conversations. They're not going out as a group. 
Um, a lot of them won't nurture their friendships because they don't want to have to in initiate that interaction. And, and so many of my teenage girls right now, it's so exhausting because so many of them are feeling socially anxious. And so they're not nurturing, they're not putting in the work to nurture a relationship, right? And so they're sort of being forgotten about because they're not front of mind. They're just waiting for everybody else to initiate. But then when other people aren't initiating, they feel like, well, maybe I'm not that important. And that creates a vicious cycle as well. Um, some of them are totally passive and indifferent. You know, they're just closing themselves off. Their body language is closed off. They're not smiling. They have very flat affect. Um, they might mumble, right? They're just really quiet. And if they do start talking, and they get other people to talk about themselves, right? They're going to talk enough to take away the conversation from their self. So, because usually if we're socially anxious, we don't want to talk about ourselves. Um, they might be nervous, like just nervous tendencies. So they're, you know, twirling their hair, they're bouncing their leg, they're fidgeting. They're always looking like they're on the go. They're, they're kind of in a rush to leave, especially when they're stuck and feeling awkward in a situation. So it definitely leads to a lot of problems in the future and a lot of the social anxiety. I mean, I was talking more about the quiet kids who are trying to hide away, but we also see aggressive outbursts too when they're uncomfortable. So sometimes for some kids, it's just easier to be the aggressor, right? And being the jerk. What, what are you looking at? Because then it's just easier to be the jerk. And that's why people don't like me versus they don't really like the core of me. That's way more vulnerable. Um, when we're addressing this, of course, early intervention is always critical, but it's never too late, no matter how old the person is. So even if we are working with an adult, I work with socially anxious adults all the time, it doesn't matter, but we do want to start nipping it in the bud as soon as we can, right? So when we get to helping kiddos manage the social anxiety, there's a few things that we need to consider. Um, of course, we want to get to the various conspiracies that are coming up. I, I don't get like getting stuck in the content. It's all about the process of anxiety, but understanding those henchmen and the conspiracies that some of those henchmen are spinning can be really helpful. So worries that other are going to think that I'm a complete loser, right? Or I'm a total inadequate fool, or they're not going to like me, right? We're going to have no friends. I'm going to have no friends. I'm going to be a total social outcast. So while we want to swoop in and convince our kids that, no, you're wrong. Look at all how the great qualities you are so fantastic and you're so funny and you're so beautiful, right? We're always swooping in to try to make them feel better. And look at all these people who love you and look at that kid. Like they were your, these are your friends. They're trying to talk to you, right? They want to be like you. They want to be your friend. If you've already heard me talk before, you know that that's not helpful. Sometimes it can be helpful. Um, when we're looking at tweens and teens, especially, but even some of the adults that I work with uh, around giving education, uh, we're all social, we are social beings. And so social anxiety is normal for everyone. Everyone has this worry, right? And we're all caught up in ourselves usually, right? And we're all, especially those teens and tweens, they're so caught up in themselves. They're not even thinking about you or other people. But we can't always say that. I, I always be careful, right? Because oftentimes kids are jerks and there really is. And I'm going to be talking about that uh, in a second. But that's one of anxiety's traps is believing that everybody is keeping their eyes on us and really critically they're judging us, right? So, so that's one of the conspiracies that often comes up and then we're feeling more anxious and then we're worrying about people noticing how anxious we are and, and on and on it goes, just like what I said. 
So sometimes it can be helpful just as a psychoeducational piece to talk about that anxiety and how normal it is. I actually love the door study. I'll uh, keep a link for you in the show notes so that you can look at that. And it's a great video there. You know, even if you just take a little clip of the video to, to show kids. Um, I think that that can be really helpful. It just highlights how no one's really paying attention. We're so caught up in our own world, right? So it, in the door study, just in case you don't check it out, essentially they show someone. So someone comes up to a stranger on the street and asks them for directions. And as the one person is looking at the map or trying to explain directions, um, two people walk by with this huge door, like they're moving this door. But as this door comes between the person asking for the directions and the stranger, um, it goes in between them. And the person who initiated asking swaps out with somebody completely different. And oftentimes it's so fascinating. The other person doesn't even realize that you're now a new person. And they were doing this at first. When you look at the video, it does look like it's, you know, same, um, looking kind of profile man with a, a baseball cap. Maybe it was a blue baseball cap and now it's a green baseball cap, but they've even done it with men and then a woman swaps in or vice versa or something like that. Um, but usually, I mean, so that's just one little piece. We're not going to try to convince anybody. We're not trying to reframe thinking. So I'm not wasting time there because reality is, like I said, if you're a kid or if you're a tween, but even, or a teen, or even as an adult, people are judgy. We live in a judgy world. So we can't say, look, everybody's in their own head. Nobody's watching you. Well, the reality is somebody probably is, right? We can't stop judginess. There's always going to be judgy jerks in the world, right? Who talk behind people's backs. They make fun of each other. They're talking on social media. Can you believe she said that? You know, we can't control what they're thinking. We have no idea whether someone is going to be judging us or not, right? Or, or judging negatively or not. And we're judged about our work performance and our essay writing, and we're always being judged for everything. So reality is we are being judged. So yes, there is a psychoeducational piece, but I'm not trying to use that to convince them otherwise. So the piece then that we need to focus on, it's not about trying to make them think, okay, you know, people really aren't judging me. No, it's, 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 it's not about that, right? It's about the belief that when we're judged, it's the end of the world. And when I'm judged, I can't handle it. It being rejection, ridicule, judgment, being laughed at, any of that. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's catastrophic. So that's what we need to focus on managing. It's not about trying to make them think that nobody's ever going to judge me. We're always being judged. Even our teachers, as we're sitting in our desks, are judging us, whether we're listening or not, being good, following rules or not, right? And so we just got to get out of that. It's about being able to, A, not know if somebody's judging me, and B, even if they do, I can handle it. It's not the end of the world. So before we go into any of the anxiety intervention, I want to talk about skills because skills, sometimes we, we jump right into trying to get them to manage that anxiety. But if there's lagging skills, they're always going to feel anxious. We're not addressing a bigger problem because oftentimes they're, they're, they might not know how to initiate a conversation or maintain a conversation, 
right? Maybe they don't know how to read social cues. Maybe they don't know how to understand nonverbals. And if they don't know those things, that's going to create anxiety. But once they learn those things, oftentimes we see that anxiety ease up because now they have the skill. So we always want to make sure we're first addressing any of those lagging skills, right? So that could use a bit of work. Because otherwise that anxiety is just going to go on and on and on. We're throwing them in. It's like throwing them into a pool, into the deep end, and they have no idea how to swim. Obviously, you're going to freak out and be anxious, right? And so there's no amount of just breathe and trying to, you know, calm down and relax. It's ever going to help you if you're drowning, right? It's going to be way harder to manage effectively. You are not ever going to be thinking about, I just need to manage this fear that I've got. We got to work on the skills. What are the skills that we need to consider? So um, I've already kind of talked about things, being able to introduce ourselves, right? Going up to people, or if they come up to us, knowing what to say and not, even if we're thrown off guard, being able to sort of have an automatic response in any sort of situation, knowing how to initiate interactions, right? So it's just going over and saying, hey, you guys are looking like you're having fun. I want to join you, right? So the initiation piece, responding to other people's advances to us, but also maintaining those interactions successfully, right? So we might be able to start off great. Hey, I'm Caroline. So anyway, oh, wow, it's getting late, right? How do we maintain those interactions successfully? Um, so maybe I'm looking, what, even when we break that down, when I'm talking about initiating and maintaining, there's other skills within that that's going to be important. So if we're maintaining, how do you listen actively? How do you be a good listener? Because if you're anxious, you're probably not listening. You're probably thinking in your head, and then you're going to say something totally out of context or off topic, and people are going to be like, what are you talking about? What? And now we've just disrupted that interaction. Now we're more anxious. Now we've got evidence to say, see, I'm a fool, anxious, or socially, I can't do this. So that's the problem when we're anxious. We're just so caught up in our mind and what to say next, or we're worried about ourselves that we're not listening. And so then we come across as disinterested. We come across as rushed that I don't like you. I don't want to be with you. And maybe we're making them feel uncomfortable. We want to get out of that interaction. And so then people are just feeling like you don't really want to engage with me. And then they're going to question their relationship with you. Right? So being able to listen without getting caught up in that anxiety is so important. And so that's something I do a lot of work with, a lot of practice with, a lot of, especially my teens um, when I'm working with them. Um, knowing how to not just initiate, it's easy when there's just one person standing around, right? My daughter actually was talking about how she's got a new friend. I'm like, oh, how did you guys meet? And it was just, uh, they had a mutual friend who went into the store. They were with a group of friends but it was getting close to the bell. It was just over lunchtime. Their friend was taking forever in the store. Most of the group had left. So then it was just my daughter and this other girl. So then of course, Hey, how's it, you know, how's your day going or whatever. So now they can start chatting and they sort of built that relationship, even though they just sort of peripherally knew each other just from this group, but now they're forced because it's only them, but knowing how to insert yourself into a group is going to be another important skill. So whether there's a group conversation, and, and this is something that I, my daughter has had to work on. And a lot of teenagers do, even though they'll see their best friend, their very best friend in the universe sitting at the cafeteria, but they're talking to 
it's so interesting. They'll say, oh, she was sitting with their friends. I'm like, but you're her friend too. But they're like, oh, it's her friends. They're other friends. And, and, and then they're like, I don't know how to insert myself into that group. Right. And so that can be really tricky as well. How do I join, whether it's a group conversation or there's just a group, they're just settling themselves down. How do I start up a new one effectively, or just get myself in there? Right. Again, listening's huge. So listening is always the precursor skill that I'm always working on. Asking open, open-ended questions can be really helpful too. So if we're listening, asking those open-ended questions, making comments about what they're saying, just to keep those conversations going. So, so there's different things there as well. Assertiveness. So yes, assertiveness and being able to initiate interactions, but I find a lot of our socially anxious kiddos and teens really lack this assertiveness. They're not even things like, um, putting their hand up when, when they need help, right. Or sharing anything personable or, or sharing any vulnerability. One that I've been working on with a lot of my tweens is being able to go into a store. And even though there might be a huge rack, let's just say that, you know, they want all dressed chips. Okay. And there might be a huge display of all dressed chips being able to go and ask someone, Hey, I can't find the all dressed. Can you show me where they are? they're like, oh my gosh, they're right there. You know, they, they don't want to inconvenience anybody. They don't want to bug anybody. Right. And so those are things that we need to work on. So it's being assertive, getting your needs dressed. If, if, if you order an iced tea at the restaurant and they bring you a Coke, do you have the assertiveness to say, oh, actually I ordered an iced tea. Most of the time, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. I'll just drink it. Right. So that's an example, a few different examples of being assertive, um, understanding social cues. That's always important and other people's social cues, certainly, but understanding our own social cues as well. Right. And I think we don't often overlook that. I never realized when I was a teenager and even uh, into womanhood, I, I never realized that I really presented myself as very intimidating to others. And so I was always like, why won't people come up and talk to me? Right. Or, um, like just people were always standoffish to me. And I had no idea that I was so intimidating until someone said it. And, and it was a friend that I, over time we grew to be friends. And she's like, I was always so scared to come and talk to you right? I had no idea, but that was my own anxiety. So I had this stone cold face, very stiff, right? Very flat affect, stiff body. I was closed off, not very welcoming. You know, I knew I had to get to from A to B and that's where I focused. I wasn't looking at people. I wasn't smiling as I walked by them in the hallways or in the, in the street. Right. And so that's something to think about too, is how are we presenting ourselves? Usually we act sort of tough, and confident, but overly so, right? Or just totally meek and we're hiding and we never give anybody the opportunity to interact with us. Um, I, I had one little guy who always entered a room, a room with a scowl in his face, right? And he'd come in and he'd just cross his arms and he'd have this big, his, his eyebrows were furrowed and his face was just scrunched up like he'd just eaten this lemon, right? He's going to extinguish anyone from wanting to interact with him right? Versus a kid who comes in smiling. Hey, Bobby, how's it going? Right? Everybody wants, but if he comes in, huh? Oh, what's his problem? Right? But the kid, he was so socially anxious. It was just easier to do this. And he even talked about being the mean guy, because then people aren't going to um, 
make fun of him. He had some problems with bullying and things like that in the past. So, but it's just the fear, right? That we, we keep ourselves, we sort of self-preserve ourselves. Um, I worked with a woman too. So it's not just kids. So at work, she's the one who hurried with her eyes down, right. Or, or always like pretending she had some files that she had to look at as she was walking between offices. Right. Um, and she would always be stiff and closed off and straight to her desk. She was never stopping at the water fountain or checking in if people were chatting. Um, when anyone ever came to her office to talk, she was very huffy. She wouldn't really look up, you know, yes, can I help you? She might quickly glance, but then she's back on. Right. And so um, other places like in the lunchroom, she never looked at anyone. She was usually eating lunch at her desk. If she had to go into the lunchroom to warm up her, her lunch, she would usually bring her phone. So she's then busy looking. She's standing facing the microwave, right? If anybody talked to her, she was just really short in her answers. Um, didn't say hi to anyone unless they said hi to her. So all of this to say, all of these things, very closed off. She thought no one liked her. No one invited her out. No one said, hey, we're going to go get a coffee. Do you want to come? And she never stopped to think about her own body language. And so I said, how would you react if this is what what you saw all the time, day in and day out, right? That she's always rushed, that she never talks to anyone, right? She's too busy to interact, right? So she's created this self-fulfilling prophecy. And so in that case, the skills were really on her being able to have this relaxed, open posture, having a warm smile, her hands at her sides, not carrying stuff, purposely not bringing her phone, making time, looking at people, making eye, eye contact and smiling. That's where we were starting to focus on all the skills. And just by doing that, she's like, oh my gosh, it's so easy to interact now. I always thought it was this huge challenge, but just by changing these few things. Now it did take work because she had been at that job for seven years. And so she had developed these patterns. And so then it was kind of weird when all of a sudden she's like, oh, hey, Susie, how's it going? Right? Like she's now approaching people. But once we address that skills piece, I've only given a few examples. Um, once we've addressed the skills piece and it's not a skills piece, we only have the anxiety to address. Then we talk about the process the same way as I've talked about in all of my episodes before, right? So we're building that awareness of when those social anxiety henchmen pop up. I like to name them. So there is perfectionist Pete, right? Where I have to articulate every word perfectly. I actually have a few teens like that. And if they mumble, uh, stumble over a word, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And they say like, Hey, and they recompose themselves. Let me say that again. Right. Um, so I like to externalize it because we're not our anxiety. We don't have to be slaves to it. So identifying that part and bossing it back, we're going to be the rulers of our own life. So um, we've got perfectionist Pete, maybe it's lonely Luke, no one's going to like me, right? Or rejection read, everyone's going to laugh at me, totally reject me, right? Mind reading Mandy, I know <gasps> she gave me a funny look. I know exactly what she's thinking. She thinks that I'm a complete utter fool, right? We think that we know what people are saying in their heads about us. Whatever it is, we want to label it and we want to identify them so that we can be like, oh yeah, there's... Uh, mind reading Mandy. So there's a couple of reasons why. First, we're keeping our rational brain online, right? Because that's, we don't want to get into the rumination and go offline into worries. <gasps> so by 
by getting curious of hmm, who's the henchman here? What are the conspiracies? I know in CBT, they do that to then be able to find evidence and reframe the thought. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to keep their rational brain online so they can stay here and problem solve, right? And do what they need to do to manage that anxiety effectively. Uh, so it helps keep our prefrontal cortex online. It also helps demote the worries a little bit because we're changing how we respond to it. We're not getting sucked in with, oh my gosh, she thinks my hair is terrible. It's a, uh, okay, mind me reading Mandy. I really have no idea what she's saying. So yeah, maybe she thinks my hair is terrible. So what? So we're demoting that story and we want to stay objective and not get carried away with that rumination. So once we're aware, oh, there's mind reading Mandy. Oh, there's the conspiracy. Oh, I can see, okay, she's really making my chest pound, right? My heart's pounding and I've got this chest pain. So we're dropping into the body. We're going to see what is that social henchman trying to make us feel physiologically. And again, we want to remain objective. What's happening in my body? Okay, I can feel it in my chest. It feels like pressure, right? Again, we're keeping our rational brain online. That's what we're doing here. That's what we want to do so that we can manage that anxiety. And when we're keeping our prefrontal cortex online, we're like, okay, this makes sense. This is a normal feeling. My brain can't tell the difference between somebody making fun of me or thinking something funny of me and being attacked. So no wonder my heart is starting to beat so fast, right? We know then when we keep our rational brain, we don't get caught up in the stories of, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack. We're knowing this is okay. This makes sense. This isn't dangerous. I know what my body's doing. And just by doing that alone can be enough to keep our feet on the ground and keep going. Even if we're not trying to convince ourselves, oh yeah, this is what our body's doing. Just by dropping in, okay, it's mind reading Mandy. What is she doing to my body? Okay, I can feel that pressure. Just by doing that alone is keeping our feet on the ground. And then we can keep going rather than freaking out. Um, we can do some proactive things always, you know, just to reduce that overall arousal, just because going in anybody who's anxious and overly anxious, they just have a higher arousal level. So if we're going to be breathing, for example, breathing's great, not in the moment. It's not an anxiety strategy, right? Because we have to, if our heart starts pounding to get our blood to our muscles, we have to start breathing faster. So we start breathing shallowly. And so retuning that breathing pattern overall proactively, that can be helpful to reduce the overall arousal, to reduce the trigger, happy amygdala in our brain. Okay. In the moment, it can keep us grounded, but if we're trying to use that breathing to get rid of anxiety, that's bad. That's not helpful. Anytime we try to eliminate anxiety, we try to reduce it or get rid of it. We're only making it worse. So that's not why we're going to use breathing. I, I kind of equate breathing to if you've ever watched a movie and someone's, you know, ha has a gunshot wound, right? So maybe they got a gun shot in their side and they rip a piece of cloth off and they're tying it around their side or they're, they've got a gash and they're just tying a piece of clothing off and wrapping it around. If they don't do anything else, they're going to bleed out, right? So breathing is just kind of enough just to keep us going to be able to do the things that we need to do for anxiety. It's not the cure to make us better. It's not an anxiety strategy. It's just enough to keep us grounded. But I use breathing proactively because especially with kids and teens, oftentimes that breathing 
if we're trying to get them to breathe and to calm down, it actually can make that anxiety worse. So we just got to be careful, right? And it's the same to you with mindfulness on that note. It's not about trying to clear our mind or distract ourselves or stop thinking these silly thoughts. It's, it's not about that. It's about staying grounded in what's happening here and now without getting carried away with the rumination and with the conspiracies. So that's why I like dropping into the body because now we're noticing our feet on the ground, right? What's happening physiologically? That when we're doing that and dropping into the body, we're just not getting carried away with rumination, but to really rewire the brain. So yes, we're going to address it. We're going to label those henchmen when it's mentionable, it's manageable, right? We're going to make sure we're grounded as much as possible, but the real rewiring of the brain. Um, so because really when we're socially anxious, it's just so sensitive to any social, social situation, any potential faux pas that we do socially, Right. But to, to be able to uh, reduce the trigger happy amygdala, right, and manage this, we actually have to put ourselves into uncomfortable situations and teach our brain, look, look how awkward it is. Look how red I'm turning. Look how sweaty I'm getting. I can handle it though, right? I can still handle it. I can handle the awkwardness of starting a conversation. I can handle the uncertainty of not knowing whether or not people are judging me or going to like me, Right never knowing what they think about me or whether they even like me or anything like that. So that's where we're going, right? They need to learn to cope with everyday functioning because we might have a teacher who doesn't like us or friends who don't, well, they wouldn't be friends if they didn't like us, coworkers who don't like us, classmates who don't like us, right? So we need to be able to cope with that and still do our job, whether it's schoolwork or work work, whatever it is that we're doing. So these skills, it affects adulthood as well. And if we're not addressing it now, that's why the earlier we work on the better, but it does end up costing them far more as they get older. If they're always worried about being judged from their colleagues or their boss who inherently has to judge them, right? And they're always avoiding those situations. What, what the heck are they, you know, it's just going to be so hard if they're not having the skills now. So if they're not working that and, and working on, I don't know how I'm going to do if I make a complete fool of myself, if people are going to like me, if they're not working on that now, how are they ever going to do a job interview? Because like it or not, they're going to be judged, right? So that's the one thing that I often talk to parents about and get their buy-in because they're like, well, they're so uncomfortable. Why do I actually have to make? It's okay if I just, you know, or if they just stay home, we're making these excuses and accommodations, but we got to think long-term because it's going to cost you more tomorrow than it does today. And the only way we can teach our brain and to build that resilience muscle and to build that social bravery is to face all of those social situations. And I know it's so hard in the moment and we just want our kids to feel better. It's okay, kiddo. I'll show you where the chips are. It's okay, kiddo. You don't need to put your hand up in class. It's okay. You don't have to write in class or do a presentation in class. We're giving kids all of these accommodations. It's just making it worse, right? And I know we want to let kids feel better in the moment, but that's such a short-sighted strategy and it's impairing their ability to build that brave pathway in the brain. And they're just always going to be anxious. And the more we avoid making them, allowing them to avoid, it's not just this situation that's going to be the problem. Anxiety generalizes so easily. I've talked about this on previous episodes where, you know, we might just be scared of one little spider, but now it's generalizing to any creepy crawly or any fly thing or any moving thing that's not human, right? It just generalizes so easily. So. 
not talking to this one person could end up kids not talking to anybody at all. It just sort of snowballs across people, across places and contexts. So it generalizes. So we definitely want to make sure that we're getting on this, even those things like it's okay, kiddo, I'll, I'll get your iced tea. I'll let the waiter know, right? They got to do it. Um, with my daughter who experienced a lot of social anxiety when she was in junior high, we created a bravery jar. So we wrote a ton of different social situations that she could put herself into, initiate different social situations, and we put them in the jar. And so every day before she went to school, she had to take a paper out and do that thing. And so maybe it was complimenting someone as she walked through the hallway or asking someone to hang out at lunch or maybe hang out after school, right? Putting her hand up in class, sitting with someone in the cafeteria or going up to her friends in the cafeteria, volunteering to help with something in the class or at school, um, texting someone just, Hey, how's it going? Or here, I found this funny meme. I was thinking of you, um, saying hi to someone in the hallway as they walk by, right. Asking someone what they did over the weekend. We did lots of different scenarios. We just brainstorm a ton of different things. And then we put them in that jar. Now, sometimes those things had to be broken down into different situations right? So maybe it's being able to tell a joke. That's a big skill to be able to tell a joke successfully. And my daughter actually now who was socially anxious, she is always telling jokes and it's so funny. And, and she, her big thing right now is all about really crappy dad jokes and she makes them up. It's not that she's looking for them. Like she's making them up on the fly and she's actually so good at it now because she's had that practice and she's had the success. And the awesome part about it is most of the time it makes people cringe. Like, Oh, that's so terrible. And even her one friend is like, these are getting worse every single day. Her friend had just texted her that. But she, 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 but now that's the humor in it. The worse they are and the more people cringe, she realizes that's actually quite funny. So she's not worried about being judged. Actually, the more she's judged, the better it is, right? The cheesier it is. Um, but if we're going to look at being able to tell a joke, maybe it's telling a joke to a family member, not the immediate family member. Well, maybe it would be, but then maybe it's to grandma or to one friend and now to a group of friends or a group of people that you just met, because that's a huge skill. I'm always looking at people's social skills and the people who are most, I, I remember going to this Christmas party, a work Christmas party year after year after year. And there was just always this one group that were the most successful. They, they planted themselves in one spot. And everybody came to them. They never had to go say hi to anybody else, right? They just did their thing. Everybody came to them, but they always had things to show. Hey, did you see this video? Right. And then that opened up a conversation. So just looking at even those little wedges to get in there can be really helpful. Um, one thing we included too were little acts of kindness. There's actually a lot of research supporting um, being able to do acts of kindness for others. We're boosting their feel-good hormones. We're nurturing that relationship and their goodwill feelings towards us. Um, but we're also raising our feel-good hormones and our connection and relationship as well. Um, our brain can't tell the difference between us doing something nice for somebody else or them doing something nice for us. So those little acts of kindness can be really helpful to build those relationships and connections. So that's definitely something that you want to look at targeting as well. But really, we're just looking for opportunities um, as much as possible, naturally occurring opportunities, but maybe we're creating ones too, where they have more exposure. So for example, joining Toastmasters, 
they have to practice doing public speech, speaking in front of other people, right? Or maybe doing an acting class. Oh my gosh, I've seen so many kids, even severe, severe selective mutism who now like just dominate on the stage, right? And now they're performing in front of others. Um, my daughter, a huge leap for her was just getting a job you know, in retail. And so now she's talking to people every day. So I think that that's really important. Um, as always, how we respond is really important as well. You know, we're, we're being validating of their fears. Of course you feel this way. Of course you do social anxiety. We all feel social, socially anxious. That makes sense. Right. So being validating and supportive on the one hand, but confident that they can manage on the other. Yeah. I know it's awkward. Not knowing if you've got enough money course you feel that way. I would feel awkward too. Let me know how it goes, right? How are you going to figure it out? Um, I always want to make sure we're, we're reviewing successes regularly as well. So having a success jar or a journal where they can see successes, because I remember that amygdala is right next to our hippocampus. And we have, so we're remembering the big, scary, awkward, emotional moments rather than our successes. So we want to make sure that we are for sure reinforcing any socially brave behaviors. And now we're really reminding ourselves over and over and over. So practicing those skills, practicing getting out there, right? on purpose, waking up that social anxiety henchman on purpose, making sure people are responding in helpful ways um, and making sure we want to make sure when they go and do these things, um, you know, if we're going to do a little bit of exposure, they're going to go talk to new people. We want to make sure that they're not engaging in safety behaviors. We definitely need to make sure that we're addressing that because those safety behaviors make exposure easier it makes being in social situations easier. And so if they're using those safety behaviors, we're actually not working on anxiety. We could be ingraining that anxiety otherwise. Otherwise, we're going to be getting a whole lot of yeah, buts. They're discounting the successes, right? Yeah, but I had my lucky bear with me. And so lucky bear made it easier for me. Um, safety behaviors, they typically show up as avoidance. So avoiding absolutely anything that we could be judged for. So we're not going out. If I do go out, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not making eye contact. I'm going to avoid talking to anybody. I'm just going to be like, oh, shoot, I'm late. Or I got to go to the bathroom, right? I'm not going to be putting my hand up in class. We're going to not write a test. Whatever we're going to do to hide ourselves as much as possible or get ourselves out of any situation where we might be judged, right? Or... We might do things to make it easier. Um, a lot of teenagers and young adults, for example, will drink as a social lubricant, right? Or they'll smoke a joint. It lightens them up. And then they believe, hey, I'm the funniest guy in the universe after 10 beer, right? Um, or we're keeping, this is my big one, actually. I keep myself busy with something else. I'm not really engaging in others. So um, we have a Christmas party every year. And every year I keep myself busy in the kitchen. For, I mean, it's an open kitchen. So I'm still talking and people are, are still coming chatting, but I'm always keeping myself. I'm running around. I, I'm never just sitting and being able to talk, right? So that's a great 
a way, great safety behavior to make those social situations a little bit easier. Um, again, asking someone lots of questions about themselves so that we don't have to talk about ourselves. So those things that I had talked about earlier, those are all safety behaviors. So we definitely want to make sure that we're considering those and what those behaviors are and that people aren't actually engaging in them, right? Or another favorite one of mine is just always standing kind of slightly behind my husband. He's this big monster of a man who's so socially gregarious. It's just easy for him to engage and initiate and maintain those conversations. Um, so, so that's kind of another safety behavior that I would need to get out of, leave my husband and go mingle and socialize without him. Um, I'm always working with the other important people in a client's life. So whether it's with an adult, we're working with their spouse or roommates or, or, or whatever, but with kids for sure, parents. So again, we, we want to make sure they're creating opportunities for these kiddos or individuals to be more resilient, to put their neck out on the line a little bit more, um, and to stop accommodating for a lot of those behaviors. So accommodations, you know, I, I get parents to stop ordering their kids dinner if they're at a restaurant or, you know, if they want to go for dinner, cool. If they want to eat dinner at the restaurant, cool. They just got to order it themselves. And if they don't really, that's okay. They don't need to say anything at all. Cool. You didn't order. I know you really didn't want to eat here, right? We just got to be okay with eating in front of them because they made that choice and they can eat something at home, you know, when they get home, we can't force our kids to be social. We can't force them, you know, that bravery jar. My daughter was socially motivated. Um, and I'm going to talk about external motivation as well in a second. Um, but so I couldn't force her to go and talk to anybody at school, but I didn't need to. Well, one thing I had her start doing was calling the doctor. If she needed, if she wanted to get blood tests or if she needed to go check something out, I'd make her pick up the phone. That's another big one that a lot of kids, they just, they feel uncomfortable picking up the phone. Or actually I was working with a family not too long ago where kiddo would want parents to call the store to see if they had something there before they made the trip. And they're like, I don't like, dude, if you want it, you got to call, right? That's on you to do. And the kid's like, <laughs> but that's a great opportunity. So we're going to look for all of those opportunities where he, he's bought in. He really wants to know if it's at the store. And if not, that's okay. We can't force them. So we want to create very motivating opportunities for them to be able to speak up to get what them want, they want, right? If they want a bag of chips, cool. They got to go into the store and get them. If they want a play date, cool. You got to set that up. My youngest one is great at that. She's always texting. Hey, Heather, want to come play with your daughter when works, right? So she's texting other parents or calling other parents to figure things out. Um, as they do these things too, we want to ensure, again, they're not engaging in any of those safety behaviors. Like I'm only going to do it if mom's coming with me. Or I'm only going to talk to someone if they talk to me first, or I'm not going to go out unless I have a few drinks first. So we got to make sure that those aren't happening. Um, I think being prepared is helpful. We can prepare kids before going into any situation. We can have them memorize. I, I love my teens. I, I have them memorize like five sort of engaging questions just to get a conversation stimulated and not just, uh, hey, have you seen a good movie lately? That could be one of them. But it could be like, if you could be born in a different timeline, when would you have been born, right? Just really different thought-provoking kind of questions. Um, 
So having some questions on, on, on hand when you're interacting with someone just to help build momentum with success, right? Just to get them started and short and sweet, right? Maybe you're just going into a situation for a couple of minutes. Okay, cool. It was good talking to you. I got to get going now so that they're leaving that situation successfully. Um, but we want to make sure, too, that they're building in flexibility. We don't want them memorizing a whole script. It's just a few things on hand to get them going, leave the situation, feel success, feel some confidence. But now we're going to throw in more. They got to be flexible. They got to be spontaneous and not worrying about what they're going to say. If they're listening closely to the other person, that's automatically going to give you ideas of what to talk about. So with more experience talking with lots of different people, it does get easier. And they learn how to handle a bunch of different situations. So I'm always saying any opportunity you have, there's so many what I call fairy weather people in the world, people that you don't necessarily have a huge commitment to, oh my gosh, I want them to be my best friend or, oh my gosh, I want to date this person, right? People that you're right, happen to ride an elevator with, people that you happen to be waiting in line with strike up, use some of these skills in those situations, because you can learn what was successful, what wasn't so that I can try it in those other relationships that are really important to me. Um, I always have when I do exposure, when they go into that situation, I have them make predictions about how awful it's going to be. All the horrible things that could possibly go wrong, right? Um, what could go wrong? What are some of those barriers? How are you going to handle it? Uh, for some, having a coping card, especially for the really, 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 really anxious, and, and especially if I'm doing something in session where I'm making them go interact with people in session and they're so anxious and they're coming back to talk to me, I will give them a coping card. And so on the one hand, it's, I mean, really, it depends on, we don't want it too convoluted. When I give it to them to go, on the one hand, I'll say, this is my prediction of how awful it's going to be on a scale of one to 10, what all the henchmen conspiracies are going to be. And on the other hand, on the flip side, this is what I'm going to do to coach myself because anxiety wants us to forget all of our coping skills and everything that I'm going to do to manage that anxiety when it shows up. So we're identifying that conspiracy that, that the henchman is spinning. And on the other hand, what am I going to say about that? Right. So having coping cards can be really helpful. And by doing these things in the situation, they can be like, okay, lonely new Luke, I knew you're going to show up. I told Caroline that you're going to show up. Yep. There's the story that I'm not going to have any friends that nobody's going to find anything that I say interesting. And I know you want me to stay home. Oh yeah. There it is. Stay home. Stay home. Flip. Sorry, dudes. Right. I for sure then won't have any friends if I stay home. So I'm going to try right? I'm still feeling anxious. I'm still feeling awkward. All of those stories are still happening. All of those uh, anxious feelings are still happening, but I'm going to go and try. Or there's Sir Laugh-A-Lots. Everyone is going to laugh at my new haircut, right? I knew you're going to show up. I knew you're going to say that everybody's going to hate my haircut. Well, look, nobody's laughed yet. I like it. And I'm going to go and see, I'm going to go see if people are going to laugh at it. And maybe they do. Right. So we're going to make predictions and then later on check in afterwards, especially if I'm doing this in session, in session, come back, let me know how bad it was. Did anything horrible happen? And I don't care if anything horrible did happen. I actually think that's better, right? If something horrible did happen, that's fantastic because yeah, Look, something horrible did happen and you handled it, right? So 
yes, we can focus on trying to disconfirm beliefs. That's usually what we want to try to do in exposure, but so that can be helpful, but we can teach them, look at how awful it got and you survived because you didn't think someone smirking at you was survivable. And now they were full out laughing and pointing at you feels gross, but look, you survived it. Right. So how, how long, um, do you think that the laughing's gonna stop? Right. Um, or whatever it is, how long before you're going to laugh at this situation and you're going to realize how silly it was or everything that was going on for you. So that's where we want to end up going. When we go into those exposures, we got to remember what is the learning happening? That's where we're going to rewire our brain. And then we got to make sure that we're not just learning something that we're instilling that learning so that we remember our successes so that the next time we go into the situation, oh yeah, this is just like that time and I survived it. And so obviously the more we're practicing every single day, and that's what I did with my daughter, every single day, she had to, to, to pick out that thing from the bravery jar. Um, she's going to have more experiences to draw from, and we're going to build that momentum. Now, just to go about the reinforcing. So anytime we see that uh, socially brave behaviors. We're going to acknowledge it, address it, throw it into our success jar. Now, sometimes kids are just motivated because um, like, yeah, I want friends, right? I don't want to be forgotten. And that's usually with the social anxious kids. They are neglected. They're not rejected. They're neglected, neglected because they're not at the forefront of mind. They try to stay hidden away. They're doing everything that they can to be hidden away. So they're not the center of attention. So of course, they're going to be easily forgotten about. It's not because people don't like them or that people don't want them at their sleepovers or parties. They do. They're just not at the front of mind, right? They're almost, they feel like an afterthought because they put themselves into that sort of place. So some of them are motivated to be, no, I want to be at the forefront of my friends' minds. I want to be the first to be asked out to a dance or to a, a sleepover or whatever it is. So that enough might be motivating for them. But for some kids and my daughter, it was like, oh, especially the everyday stuff. Um, it wasn't enough right? She's like, I'm just fine with the friends I want. She did want to work on it. So hear me when I say that as well. It was about the anxiety getting in the way. If she's just fine with her friends and, and doesn't care, that's a whole different ball of wax, right? We're not going to work on it. We don't need to work on it. But for her, it really was the anxiety that was getting in the way. And she would have these moments of, I wish, I wish, I wish things were different socially. So clearly it was something that we needed to work on. Um, so we had to sweeten the deal a little bit. And if you've heard me before, like her thing was always being able to watch. It used to be Grey's Anatomy. Now it's Modern Family. If she can have an episode of Modern Family and a bag of nibs, that was her motivation. Kate, it's I'm willing to go and compliment someone today, right? Even if I don't care about that person, I'm willing to do that because I just want to chill at the end of the day. So sometimes we need to sweeten the deal. And that's okay because avoidance and anxiety usually is so reinforcing, it's not even worth the possible outcome of making a new friend, for example, right? So we want to make sure that their motivation is stronger than their wanting to avoid the discomfort. Anyways, lots to think about. I'm going to leave it there for today. Um, definitely making sure we're working on anxiety. The process of anxiety is the same, but with social anxiety, we're addressing those underlying skills first. And again, with anything, lots of opportunities to practice putting ourselves in these situations. So let me know if you have any questions. 
go rate me on Apple Podcasts so I can keep this uh, podcast going successfully. Uh, help those kiddos be bold and courageous, and I will see you next time. Oh, 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 oh